All right, so this week we are going to be continuing in our, our journey through the book of Judges. So the book of Judges in Hebrew is called Shoftim. This week we're going to be hitting chapter 7 and chapter 8. Last week we did chapter 6, so that's the natural progression. You see how that goes. We're going to be talking about fulfilling our role within our lives and within Messianic Judaism and with the body, within the body of Messiah as a whole. Uh, we're going to be actually continuing on. We, we, got, we have to be reminded as we come into the book of Judges, the book of Judges has a couple things going on. There's an overarching scheme of the way that the book works. The people of Israel start off with peace. And so they're at peace with God, they're at peace with their neighbors, they're at peace with one another. But then they become apathetic toward the things of God, which then leads them into sin against God. He then allows their neighbors, their enemies, to oppress them. Then he will raise up a judge who will bring about deliverance and will also of both a physical and a spiritual means. And then they'll be at peace once again. And then they'll go right back into this cycle all over again. One of the things we do really need to remember each time we get into this book is that God has a plan for Israel and he has a plan for us. So that's the thing we always had to remember. So we, it's so easy for us, especially as Gentiles, to look on and say, the Israelites, they messed it up again. They, they always mess it up. And we forget that, you know, we're just as bad, maybe even sometimes worse. You know, so it's one thing to point the finger at another person, and, but at the same time, you know, you got those three fingers that are pointing right back at yourself. You know, so we always have to keep that in mind. But always remembering that God will meet us as we step out to, toward him. It only takes one step. If you say, hey, today is the day. Today is the day I need my life to change. I need to go closer to God. He's waiting for you to take, for us to take that one step forward, and he will meet us the rest of the way. So as a quick recap, the big picture, Joshua, Yehoshua, has, uh, begins the conquest in the land. We have this time of judges that directly follows that. Israel has no king, but they do have judges to lead over them. So we had, Ehud, we had Othniel, we went over Ehud, remember Ehud was the big fat one with the, with the sword stuck in his belly. We had Shamgar, and then we had Deborah. And then last time we were together, we actually talked a little bit about Gideon. So remember Gideon, he was, in the, he was threshing barley inside of a wine press, not on the top of the hill so the chaff could blow away, he was inside a wine press. And the reason was because they were being oppressed by the Midianites at the time. And so he was hiding his grain because they would come in in great parties and raid the land. So he's hiding his, oh, sorry, his grain, <clears throat> his barley from the Midianites, and he's called by God. And God calls him a mighty warrior, and uh, even though he's hiding. He says, hey, valiant warrior, um, I'm going to use you to deliver the people. And so the first thing that Gideon does is he goes to his father's house. His father had set up an idol. He cuts down that Asherah pole. And then he burns it, and then he sacrifices upon that, idol, uh, upon that idol an offering to Adonai. The people want to stone him, but his father says, hey, you know what? If, he, if, if Baal, the false god that this was for, has an issue with him, then we'll let that god, that false god, take care of him. Let Baal uh, uh, defend himself is what Yerubbabel will be his nickname that his dad gives him. So in chapter 6, we ended with, Now all Midian, Amalek, and the others from the east joined forces, crossed the Yarden, and set up camp in the Yitzrael Valley. But the spirit of Adonai covered Gidon, 
He sounded the call on the shofar, and Eviezer, that's his family, rallied behind him. He sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and they too rallied behind him. He also sent messengers to Asher, Zavulan, and Naphtali, and they came to join them. So then that brings us to chapter 7 of Shoftim. And in verse 1 we see, Then Yerubabel, that is Gideon, and all the people with him got up early and set up camp by En-Harad. The camp of Midian was north of them, but by Givat Morah in the valley. So we see Gideon's name come up. And we didn't cover Gideon's name last time. But Gideon comes from the word Gadah, which means to hewn down. It's where we get the, the word warrior from in Hebrew. So this man Gideon, he's a warrior and he's hiding threshing his barley, but his name is Warrior. The Bible acknowledges in this one verse that both of his names are legitimate names. We see this happen with, uh, with Yaakov, with Jacob, too. There's times when he's referred to as Jacob, and there's times when he's referred to as Israel. Usually when he's referred to as Israel, it's because spiritually he's in the right place, he's doing the right thing. When he's named uh, mentioned as Jacob, it's he's going the right general direction, but it's not the best route that he could be taking. We see the same thing happen with, uh, with Gideon as well. When he is attacking against this false god of Baal, he is referred to as Yerubabal, and when he's attacking men, physical men, he's referred to as Gideon. So this Yerubabal means let Baal take up the grievance, and we're going to see in these two chapters where this man, Gideon, in name only as warrior up until this point, will fall into this characteristic as a judge and actually become a warrior in the hands of God. And it's really cool to see that Adonai can take someone who's the lowest and raise them up to be the mightiest. And the only difference between those two spots was the action that they took in moving forward. It only takes one step, but an action has to take place in order for Gideon, in name only, to become Yerubabal, the number one contender against the false god they were dealing with. So we see in the book of James, James then high, uh, jumps on this and uh, talks a little bit, and he says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone claims to have faith but has no actions to prove it. Is such faith able to save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, and someone says to him, Shalom, peace, keep warm and eat hearty, without giving him what he needs. What good does it do? Thus, faith by itself, unaccompanied by actions, is dead. But someone will say that, I, that you have faith and I have actions. Show me this faith of yours without the actions, and I will show you my faith by my actions. So the overarching thing we're looking at today is we need to do something as the body of believers within my family, within my home, within my community, within the body of Messiah as a whole. There is something that has to take place. We can't just do, be sayers and not doers. It's one thing to say, I'm praying for you, it's quite another to get down on your knees and actually do the hard work that needs to be done. But we need to do that. And that's what's going to be the difference between Gideon and Yerubabal. He's going to actually do the actions. So continuing on in verse 2. Now Adonai said to Gideon, There are too many people with you for me to hand Midian over to them. 
because I don't want Israel to be able to boast against me that we saved ourselves from our, by our own strength. Therefore, proclaim to the people, anyone who is anxious or afraid should go back home while we stay here on Mount Gilad. And at that moment, 22,000 returned, but 10,000 remained. Seems like Gideon's starting off as a bad general. <laughs> so they started off with very few warriors to begin with. 30, 32,000 total. And now he tells them, if you're afraid or if you're anxious, go on home. And over two-thirds are like, well, see you later. I could just imagine if we had a general say that in our military today. Hey, any of you who are anxious or afraid, go home. That same thing would probably happen. But here, they're not, I just, to paint the picture here, not, their numbers for their army is so small. They have 32,000 starting off against the Midianite and the Amalekites joined together as a conglomerate who have like 130,000. So their numbers are way outnumbered to begin with. But Adonai says, you know, it's not good enough. I want you to be even more of the underdog. And so he says, those who are afraid, this word afraid means being filled with concern or regret over a specific real danger or, or unwanted situation. So they're standing there in the camp. They're ready to go to the war. They can literally see the army in front of them. They're afraid of that army. There's a real reason for that emotional fear. Now, being anxious is different. Anxiety is a big issue in our country and in the world as a whole. Now, anxiety, as defined by the dictionary, is it's characterized by extreme uneasiness of mind or a brooding or unfocused fear about an intimate event or something with an uncertain outcome. In other words, anxiety is an excessive and an unfocused reaction to our emotions. So fear is, I see an army here, I'm afraid. That's okay. Th that's a legitimate thing. Anxiety is, I'm over here, the army is in a whole other country, but I'm afraid of the potential that I might get in, in trouble. Or a, a great idea that I thought of is, sitting inside my house, my children are playing in front of me, in the living room, just having a great time. But then I can't see one of the children, I know they're in the house, but yet my mind goes, well, what if they went in the backyard without me knowing? But what if, what, what if they went into the front yard without me knowing now? But what if they're playing in the road right now and they get hit by a car? So that anxiety is, I know my children are upstairs playing. They're playing in, in the house. But the anxiety is the potential of all those things that could happen, and I'm so afraid because of that potential outcome. It's not happening, but I'm afraid. And anxiety just bogs down on us, and it just eats away at us, and it just consumes, and it hurts, and it hinders our, our thinking. Adonai wants us to be clear-minded in the things that we do. He wants us to go forward in a way that is not fearful, that is not anxious. Proverbs 16, verse 9 says, a person may plan his path, but Adonai directs his steps. So we need to have a plan. We need to have a plan of action in everything in our life and where we're going. But you know what? At the end of the day, we like to say all things Hashem. He's going to direct our steps. So my plan was to come here today on Shabbat. 
what was interesting is driving down the road over here, there was a downed power line that was hanging over the road. And I swerved out of the way to miss it, but the truck behind me hit it. And there's sparks flying everywhere. It was crazy, crazy. My plan was to come here. Ed and I directed my steps to go into the other lane. You know, so planning is good. But if Ed and I cause an audible, let him roll with it and be a little bit flexible. What's really cool about this word anxious is that it actually has a secondary meaning. So both meanings are negative, but the second one almost sounds like a positive. It is ardently or earnestly wanting something very much, typically with a feeling of, a, of unease. So basically the second definition of anxiety is an unhealthy yearning for something. This is called lust. When you see lust in the Bible, that's what this is talking about. It's being anxious, an unhealthy desire for something that you should not be having. That is what lust is. We need to understand it. So when we see lust in scriptures, in our, in our country, we're always like, oh, lust is always sexual. No, it is not. Lust is just a simple, unhealthy desire for anything in your life. So when it comes to anxiety, there is... A, a way, there are ways that we need to approach this. Now, before I get into a these are what I'm about to go over is just a couple things. Just a few things here. Anxiety is a big deal in our country. And it's at this point, I need to stop and have a PSA, public service announcement. If you struggle with lust, please seek help. There's nothing wrong with that. Because just like any other sin, it takes time. It's not always a cold turkey and then you're done. Sometimes you need a partner. Sometimes you need someone to help you through that. But a couple things that I jotted down here is some of the things you can help on the physical side is honestly acknowledge that you're in a current state of emotions. So it's not, there's, we always have to acknowledge where we are in our life and the bad things and the good things. If we never acknowledge that something's bad, then we'll never take steps towards reconciling it. Avoid triggers. There's always triggers in our lives. There are certain places, there are certain people, there are certain words, there are certain smells that will trigger something in us that will snap that anxiety and get it rolling again. If you can, try to avoid those things. And avoid, oh, this is a big one, avoid negative coping mechanisms. So often we trade one sin for another. We're like, you know, I'm super anxious. You know what helps me when I'm anxious? I just want to go and I need to replace it with something else. Yeah, maybe I'll go down to the, the dispensary down the road. You know, if I can just get high for a little bit, then I won't think about my anxiety. That's true. Your anxiety may go away for a little bit, but guess what? It's still there. It hasn't been dealt with. So that's a coping mechanism. And the problem with coping mechanisms is they can then lead to greater sins later on down the road. They, they, they can cause you to be in a worse position than you were to begin with. On the spiritual side, this is the one that I like to talk about, because this is one I can talk on. The other one, you might need to get some extra help outside, someone with a doctorate. This one I can talk on a little bit. Prayer and petition to Adonai. Anytime we have an issue in our life, this, is, this should be the first thing that we do. It's prayer and petition to Adonai. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 7 says, Don't worry about anything. On the contrary, make the requests known to God by prayer and petition with thanksgiving. Then God's shalom, his peace, 
will pa which passes all understanding, will keep your hearts and minds safe in union with the Messiah Yeshua. So we must understand that Adonai knows the final outcome of all of our personal struggles. There is a light at the end of the tunnel, and let's connect to the one who knows the path to get to that light. So continuing on. So keep that all in mind as we address here with Gideon. So Adonai in verse 4 said to Gideon, There are still too many people. Have them come down to the water, and there I will screen them for you. If I say of anyone, this one is for you, he will go with you. And if I say this one is not for you, he won't go with you. So he brought the people down to the water, and Adonai said to Gideon, Put to one side everyone who laps up water with his tongue, and the way a dog does, and put to the other side everyone who gets down on his knees to drink. Three hundred lapped, putting their hand to their mouth. All the rest of the men got down on their knees to drink water. So it's kind of confusing, because usually when we think of a dog, you know, a dog's kind of down, it's face in, and it laps up. So the understanding here is those men who went down, they're like, I'm thirsty, I need water, face first, right into the water. Just drink it up, get it done and over with, and then get back in line. But then there's these others who go down, and they take up water, and they lap it. Can you imagine how long that takes? Like, if you just shove your face in the water, just slurp, you're good to go. But if you're pulling it up, and you're slowly, that, you're going to have to do that a while. And we're going to come back to these 300. I think they're super interesting because I think I kind of identify with these 300 a little bit. So Adonai said to Gideon, I will use the 300 men who lap the water to save you. I will hand Midian over to you. Let all those others go back home. So they took the provisions and the shofars of the people that he sent all the men of Israel away, each to his tent, but the 300 men he kept. So... Let's, let's summarize what we've just read. So we have Midian in, in the previous chapter, in chapter 6, that they came in as thick as locusts, but, they and the, but, but both they and their camels were beyond numbering. And we're going to find out later as we keep going in the chapter here that there's 135,000 armed men in Midian. That's not even support. That's just the armed men is 135,000. And now... For those of you who really like numbers, Israel started off with 32,000. 22,000 left who were anxious and afraid, leaving 10,000. 9,700 decided to put their face in the water and drink, and Adonai said, nope, they're gone, leaving a grand total of an Israelite army of 300. 300 versus 135,000 armed men. The odds are definitely not in Israel's favor. Now, Adonai wants to get the glory. I think he's going to. But let's talk about these 300 men first. Are they the cream of the crop? Are they the green berets or the special forces of Israel? You know, common thought for so long has been that these are the best of the best. These are the warriors of the warriors. They are the cream of the crop, the top of the barrel. This whole time in this chapter, Adonai has been trying to say, I want to get all the glory. So I don't think these are personally the cream of the crop. I think these guys are the kings of the couch. 
hear me out when I say this. There's a reason why I say this. So we have some guys run down to the water, and they stick their faces in. Now, for me to get down on the floor, to stick my face in the water, it's going to happen. It's going to be a little bit of a struggle, because I'm not the youngest, and I'm not the skinniest person in the world. And then to get back up is going to be even worse, because it hurts, because you can just, as you get older. I think these were the older guys. I think these were the riffraff, the, the ragamoroles. They were there for battle. They thought they'd never be chosen. Maybe they'd hang behind, you know, and let everyone, all the strong guys go first. So these guys get down, you know, maybe they supported each other, and they got down, and they're like, okay, I need some water. All right, here we go. And Adonai says, yeah, let's take those guys. Because I want beyond a shadow of a doubt for nobody to get the glory except for me in the midst of all this. You know, maybe, maybe not. If it's the 300 elite, that's kind of cool too. But if it's the 300 couch potatoes, oh man, there is no way 300 couch potatoes did this outside of Adonai helping out. So I really do like, like that, that, that route with it. So the camp of Midian was in the valley below him, and that night Adonai said to Gideon, get up and attack the camp because I have handed it over to you. But if you are afraid to attack, go down with your servant Purah, and after you hear what they are saying, you will have the courage to attack the camp. So with his servant Purah, he went down to the outposts of the camp. Now Midian, Amalek, and all the others from the east had settled in the valley as thick as locusts. Their camels, too, were beyond counting, like the sand of the seashore. And Gideon got there just as, the ma as a man was telling a comrade about a dream he had had. I just now dreamt that a loaf of barley bread fell into the camp of Midian, came to the tent, and struck it so hard that it overturned the tent and knocked it flat. His comrade answered, this can only be the sword of Gideon, the son of Yoash, a man of Israel. God has given Midian and all its army into his hands. Now when Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he fell on his knees in worship. Then he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Get up, because Adonai has handed Midian's armies over to you. Gideon had at this point everything he needed. He, he had no doubts in his mind that these 300 goofballs that were with him were going to get the battle done. They were going to win not because of who they were, but because of who he is. It's so cool that we see that they dream of a loaf of barley bread. You know, dreams can get a little weird. But what's so cool is we see that this dream has an interpretation with it. I always love that when the Bible has, says something, and then you read a little bit later, it has the direct interpretation. So there's no way to misunderstand what's happening. And so he says that Gideon is this loaf of barley bread. I mean, think about it. Gideon was hiding in a wine press, threshing barley. And now he's being made into this loaf of bread that's going to crush the tents of the enemy. Totally weird dream, but super cool analogy that he is going to take care of everything. So Gideon divided the 300 men into three companies. He put in the hands of all of them shofars and empty pitchers with torches in them. Then he said to them, watch me and do what I do. When I get to the edge of the camp, whatever I do, you do the same. So they're holding, port, port, they're holding, 
excuse me, they're holding an empty pitcher, clay pot in one hand with a torch inside of it, and then they're holding a shofar in another hand. I think it's amazing that 300 guys at least showed up with a shofar for battle. Not a sword, a shofar. So I think that's kind of, I think that's maybe for another day, but you could probably go on for that for a while. So they're showing up, they're encircling the whole camp. And then when I and everyone with me blow the shofar, then you blow your shofars all around the whole camp and shout for Adonai and for Gideon. Now Gideon and the hundred men with him arrived at the edge of the camp a little before midnight. So time, time frame here. So they've come down. Day one, Adonai says, hey, if you're afraid, go home. They leave. Day two, hey, if you're thirsty, go get drinks. Okay, the rest of you go back to the camp. I need you 300. We're still in day two. It's about midnight now. So he goes, he sneaks down, he hears what they have to say about him from the dream, and now he's brought his entire 300-man army to surround their camp. So Gideon and the 100 men with him arrived at the edge of the camp a little before midnight, just after they had changed the guard. So things are a little disarrayed. They blew the shofars and broke in pieces the pitchers that were in their hands. All three companies blew the shofars, broke the pitchers, and held the torches in their left hands, keeping their right hands free for the shofars they were blowing. And they shouted, the sword for Adonai and for Gideon. They added something. Gideon didn't tell them to shout that. So they added the sword for Adonai. Because why? They're not armed. 300 dudes there to do battle against 135,000 men who are armed. They have no swords. They have a shofar and they have a torch. And so they have no choice but to say, Adonai, you have to be our sword. Take care of this. They acted upon their faith. They had the action. They walked down there. They were ready to go. Then as every man stood in place around the camp, the whole camp was thrown into a panic with everyone screaming and trying to escape. Gideon's men blew their 300 shofars and Adonai caused everyone in the camp to attack his comrades. And the enemy fled before Beit Shattah near Sirah as far as the border of Avil Machola by Tabat. Then men of Israel were summoned from Naphtali, Asher, and both regions of Manasseh, and they pursued Midian. So now we see these other 31,700 men who were sent home. They're the reserves. Adonai had a plan all along. We're going to see that. They were allowed to escape through a narrow strip of land, and that's where those men were, and they're going to take care of business and take care of them. You know, sometimes we don't always know why Adonai doesn't pick us to be the one person to perform a certain task. But when we're called upon eventually to perform, we need to be ready. I might not be the one to lead the charge, but Adonai has a plan. Remember, he knows it all. He has a plan for everything. So when it's my turn to step forward and to fulfill my role, I better be ready. I better be ready and diligent. So Gideon sent messengers through all the hills of Ephraim with the message, come down and attack Midian and capture the rivers before they get there, as far as Beit Barah and also the Yarden. So all the men of Ephraim came together and seized the rivers as far as Beit Barah and the Yarden. They also captured two chiefs of Midian, Orev and Zeev. 
They put Orev to death at the rock of Orev and Ze'ev at Ze'ev's winepress. Then as they kept pursuing Midian, they brought the heads of Orev and Ze'ev to Gideon, who had crossed to the far side of the Yarden. So the battle continues. Chapter 8. But the men of Ephraim, so the battle's, it's not done. It's still going on, but we have a, a little pause in the, in the action here. But the men of Ephraim complained to Gideon, Why didn't you call on us when you went to fight Midian? Why did you treat us this way? So why weren't we part of the 300? They were sharp in their criticism. And he answered by saying to them, How, how can what I have done be compared to what you've done? Aren't the grapes of Ephraim leaves on Aren't the grapes Ephraim leaves on the vines better than the ones Eviezer harvests? God handed over to you Midian's chiefs, Orev and Ze'ev. What could I do that matches what you did? By saying that, he appeased their anger at him. He did nothing. He literally just went, he blew a shofar, broke a pot, and they ran and slaughtered each other. But then the Ephraimites come in and they actually take out these chieftains. They're doing the physical war here. So Gideon's kind of playing politics a little bit here. And he's not wrong. They were given a great honor to destroy the, the heads of the Midians. By now, Gideon and his 300 men had come to the yard and crossed over. They were exhausted, but were still pursuing the enemy. Now in Sukkot, he asked the people there, please give some loaves of bread to the men following me, because they are exhausted. And I am pursuing Zavach and Zah, excuse me, Zalmuna, the kings of Midian. But the chiefs of Sukkot said, you haven't captured Zavach and Zalmuna yet, so why should we give bread to your army? You can kind of see their point, because they have been oppressed by Midian, and these guys are on the other side of the Jordan River, which means they are more exposed to the Midianites. So they say, hey, you haven't delivered the goods. If you fail, we're going to get in trouble because we supplied your army with bread. So now Gideon said, if that's your answer, then after Adonai has put Zavach and Zamuna in my hands, I will tear your flesh apart with desert thorns and thistles. From there he went up to Penuel and made the same request. And the people of Penuel gave the same answer as those of Sukkot. So he answered, answered the people of Penuel similarly. When I return safe and sound, I will break down this tower. So we have here on the map, we have Sukkot, followed by Panua. So they've gone from there, they've come down, and they've gone on over. So they've covered a lot of land as they're pursuing the Midianites. What's interesting about this is, so Gideon pronounces a judgment upon them. We, see this, we saw the same thing happen with the city of Moroz when we learned about Deborah a couple times ago. The city of Moroz was truant. They were one who shirked their responsibilities. And she had this to say about them, because they didn't come out to battle. Curse Meroz, said the angel of Adonai. Curse the people living there with a bitter punishment for not coming to help Adonai, to help Adonai against the mighty warriors. So this isn't the first time we've seen a judge mediate judgment upon their own people because they refused to join in the battle. Now, Zavach and Tazmuna were in Karkor with their army, about 15,000 men. Remember, they started off with 135,000. They're down to 15,000. 
120,000 men have been slaughtered now by Gideon's army, which still only numbers about 32,000, give or take. All that remained of the entire army of the people from the east, since 120,000 arm-bearing soldiers had fallen, Gideon went up using the route of the nomads east of Novak and Yobaga and struck down the army when they thought that they were safe. Zavak and Salvumuna fled, but Gideon pursued them. Thus he captured the two kings of Midian, Zavak and Zalmunna, and routed their whole army in panic. Now, when Gideon, the son of Yoash, returned from the battle by way of the Harris Pass, he captured a young man from Sukkot and asked him about the chiefs and leaders of Sukkot. He wrote down for him the names of 77 of them. Then he came to the people of Sukkot and said, You insulted me when you said you haven't captured Zavach and Tzal's Muna yet. So why should we give you bread to your exhausted men? Well, here are Zavach and Zalmuna. So he caught him, brings him back. Now he's going to execute the judgment. So he took the leaders of the city and desert thorns and thistles and used them to teach the people of Sukkot a lesson. May I introduce to you this picture on the left-hand side. It's called Zilla spinosa. It is a plant found in Israel in the very same area of Sukkot. This thing is a bush. It is covered with thorns. It's beautiful. It really is beautiful, but it's covered with thorns. What's interesting is the Hebrew here can either mean to take, when it comes to these thorns, to take and to like whip them or to drag them over it, or it can mean to toss into the middle. So the idea we're seeing here is that Gideon takes these leaders in the city of Sukkot, and very easily you could see how you have one man on one arm, one man on a leg, and on the other side as well. And you just go one, two, hoop, and hoop them right into the middle of those thorn bushes. They're gonna sink right, I don't, I don't know if you've ever fallen on a thorn bush, it's very painful. But they're going to sink right down into the, I mean, this thing is like six feet high, this bush. They're going to sink down in. And not only are they inside this thorn bush now being punished, they have to drag themselves out too and get cut up as they come out. Which is really interesting because the Radak says that when they originally had promised only to destroy, oh, I'm sorry, I jumped ahead of myself. So with this idea, the reason them doing this is the, the idea of these thorns and thistles, thorns, thorn bushes are the type of bush, there, there's not a lot of nutri, nutrient, but there's a lot of pain. And so it's kind of like a play on words here where Gideon says, we came through, we needed nutrients, but you only gave us pain and we had to continue on. So now the leaders are bearing the brunt of that with this. So when they come to the tower then, this is where the Roddick says, originally Gideon had promised only to destroy the tower, not to kill anyone. It may be that when he came to destroy the tower, the townsmen attacked him and some were killed in the ensuing battle. So we see that Gideon kept to his promise with Sukkot, that they would be the leaders, not the people. The leaders would be in trouble and get beaten with thorns. But now we see that there's people who have died in the second city. And so we're never given a reason why the death happens, but the sages over the years have come to conclude that possibly they attacked Gideon when they were coming to destroy the tower, and as a result, they died, unfortunately. So then he said to Zavak and Savuma, 
tell me about the men you killed in Tavor. So he's talking about Gideon's shifting, and he's talking about some specific people. And so they answered, they looked like you, like a king's son. And Gideon replied, they were my brothers, my mother's sons. As surely as Adonai is alive, I swear that if you had spared them, I would not kill you. Then he ordered his oldest son, Yatir, get up and kill them. But the boy didn't draw his sword. Being still a boy, he was afraid. Then Zavach and Tazmula said, you do it. You kill us. Let a grown man do what takes a grown man's strength. So Gideon got up and killed Zavach and Tazmula. Then he took the ornamental crescents from around their camels' necks. The men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us. You, your sons, and your grandson, because you saved us from the power of Midian. Gideon replied, neither I nor my son will rule over you. Adonai will rule over you. This is interesting because this this very phrase will come up later on at the end of Judges with the final judge, Samuel, when the people of Israel call for a king. And Samuel says, Adonai is supposed to be your king. The thing you're asking for is wicked. It is wrong. So Samuel will echo the same statement. Then he added, but I have this request to make of you, that each of you would give me the earrings from the booty you have taken. For the enemy soldiers had worn gold earrings like all the other tribes descended from Ishmael. And they replied, we're glad to give them to you. So they spread out a robe and each man threw in the earrings from his booty. A lot of men died. It's a lot of gold earrings. So the gold earrings he requested weighed more than 42 pounds. And this doesn't include the crescents, pendants, and purple cloth worn by the kings of Midian and the chains around their camels' necks. Out of these things, Gideon made a ritual vest, which he located in his city, Ophrah. But all Israel turned turned it into an idol there. And thus, it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Now, remember, so the ritual vest, it's an ephod is what he's making. So he's taking the gold. Remember, it, the ephod, when it's made, Adonai says, I want you, we're not really given specifics of how it's made, but he says, I want you to take gold, purple, uh, gold, purple, and scarlet thread and make a vest, an apron, an under thing, and then the, the ritual breastplate goes over the top of it. So he makes some garb. He makes a robe. And he displays it, and this thing becomes an idol. What was meant to be a monument to what God had done eventually became an idol and led them into transgression once again. So we do need to be careful that we don't build monuments to ourselves or to the things that God has done because they will be worshipped at one time or another. That's what we do as humans. We take the things of Adonai and we end up kind of twisting them. So we do need to be so careful. Another thing that we see is it had been one thing if he had made this robe and then gone around all of Israel to proclaim that Adonai was judging them, had judged them, and they were free and now not to sin. But he doesn't do that. He leaves it up, and then people begin to worship it. And unfortunately, we see that Gideon doesn't end the race well. He started really good, but unfortunately, he did not end well. So this is how Midian was defeated by Israel, so that they ceased to be a threat. The land had rest for 40 years during the lifetime of Gideon. Jerubbabel, the son of Joash, returned to his home and stayed there. He didn't go out judging. He was supposed to judge the people, bring them back to God. Gideon became the father of 70 sons. At least he's pro-life. 
because he had many wives. He also had a concubine in Shechem, and she bore, and she too bore him a son, whom he called Avimelech. Ooh, that name will come up later. Gideon, the son of Yoash, died at a ripe old age and was buried in the tomb of his father Yoash and Ophrah of the Avirazi. But as soon as Gideon was dead, the people of Israel again went astray after the Baalim and made Baal Barit their god. They forgot Adonai their god who had saved them from the power of all their enemies on every side and they showed no kindness toward the family of Yerubabal, that is Gideon to repay them for all the good he had done for Israel. So the potential king became forgotten. It's a sad state. But let's end on a better state. Messianic Jews, or the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verses 23 through 25 says, Let us continue holding fast to the hope that we acknowledge without wavering, for the one who made the promise of salvation is trustworthy. And let us keep paying attention to one another in order to spur each other on to love and good deeds, not neglecting our own congregational meetings as some have had a practice of doing, but rather encouraging each other and let us do this all the more as we see the day approaching. We all have a role to play in our homes, in our congregations, and in the world as a whole. So we need to ask Adonai that he would show us our role so that we might go into it. And then we might, we need to continue in prayer that we would never give up until we have crossed that finish line. What a sad thing for Gideon to be forgotten by his people in the deliverance ultimately. They turned back to the very God that they had destroyed Baal. Very sad. But you know what? I have faith in us. I have faith in the messianic movement. I have faith in the people of God that we can finish the race well. We can move forward. Shabbat shalom.